You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of big new developments with regards to that FBI search on uh, Mar-a-Lago, Trump's home. Some new details that give us a little bit more of the contours Mm -hmm. of what's going on. Also, his uh, shifting defenses. He's kind of all over the map about what he's saying about it. Um, And there's also a little bit of political fallout now. We can see the Republicans a little bit more divided about exactly how to respond to this. We also see some poll numbers showing that this might might not be good for Trump overall, but it seems to be very good for him with regards to the Republican base. Um, we also want to give you the details of this uh, attack on an FBI office in Cincinnati. Uh, the gunman was ultimately uh, shot dead by law enforcement and increased threats against the FBI in the wake of this raid. So we have all of that. Also, the attack on Salman Rushdie mm. is reportedly now beginning to recover, but that road to recovery is very long. We'll tell you what we know about the attacker. And a story we haven't talked about for a minute, but we have some new details about exactly what happened in that horrific onset tragedy uh, with regards to Alec Baldwin, a new FBI report there. A lot of FBI in the show today. Yeah, that's right. We'll tell you about that. We also have Alex Holder on. He is that documentarian who was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, also subpoenaed down in the Georgia investigation of Trump. He had sort of, uh, well, the film is called Unprecedented, and he really did have unprecedented access to uh, Trump and to his family in the run-up to the election. Mm -hmm. I actually watched the whole thing last night, and it was really weird reliving the whole election because 
There are so much happened that there were just pieces I completely memory hold. I forgot how close it was to election day when Trump got COVID. It was in the hospital and like on death's door right before the, like, I sort of forgot how close to election day. Crazy. Anyway. Reliving it is fun. Yes, indeed. Okay, so the very latest developments, as you guys know, we had this raid on Mar-a-Lago. FBI goes in, shocking development. And there immediately were a lot of calls for increased transparency from the DOJ. Hey, we want to see what you're doing. We want to see what you took from here. Merrick Garland gave a press conference and said, okay, I'm authorizing the unsealing because the president revealed the uh, existence of this raid and some of the details. I'm going to go ahead and ask the court to unseal the search warrant and the inventory list of what was taken in that search. Uh, after some debate, I think internally, uh, the Trump team agreed. They said, okay, we're okay with this. And so those do- documents became public. Here's some of what we learned there. Let's go ahead and put the Wall Street Journal up on the screen. They were among the first news outlets to actually get their hands on these documents. They recovered, the FBI, 11 sets of classified documents in the Trump search according to that list of inventory. And I'm going to show you the inventory list in a minute. It doesn't go into a lot of specific detail, but it does give you some sort of high-level categories that give us a little bit of insight. And also on the search warrant, it indicates which criminal statutes um, they are actually, you know, that this investigation has to do with. So here's a little bit of the detail from this Wall Street Journal report. They say FBI agents who searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home removed 11 sets of classified documents, including some marked as top secret and meant to be only available in special government facilities. That is according to that search warrant and inventory list. The FBI agents took around 20 boxes of items, binders of photos. Some of the details here are sort of amusing. A handwritten note in the executive Mm -hmm. grant of clemency for Roger Stone. List of items removed from the property shows. Also including the list was information about the president of France. Um, There were some additional reporting about some of the specifics of the documents that were removed. I believe it was the Washington Post who had the bombshell report that some sort of nuclear information was included in the documents that they were at least searching for. New York Times reporting that it included special access programs. That is some of the most highly sensitive information that the government has. Um, Let's go ahead and put the image of the inventory list up on the screen, just to give you a sense of the sort of high-level categories that they have on here. You know, they list sort of like general categories of documents, but they don't get into like like nuclear secrets or anything like that. Um, They do indicate, though, that there is uh, quite a bit of secret and top secret documents that were taken out of Mar-a-Lago, or at least they're marked secret and top secret. We'll get into some of the debate about classification, how all of that works, which we've been discussing on this show already. Next, let's put the New York Times up on the screen, which gets into some of the uh, laws and criminal statutes that were listed in this search warrant. So, there were three criminal statutes that were mentioned, one of which, which is the kind of most uh, eye-catching in terms of its name, is a provision of the Espionage Act. Um, it is uh, criminalizes the unauthorized retention or disclosure of information related to national defense that could be used to harm the U.S. or aid a foreign adversary. Each offense can carry a penalty of up to 10 years in prison. Worth noting, with regards to the Espionage Act, it doesn't actually require that you're like a spy. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I just indicated, it just requires that you had, as they say, unauthorized retention or disclosure of information related to national defense. So even just, you know, 
having it when you're not supposed to, and it could be a risk, could subject you to prosecution under the Espionage Act. Of course, also the Espionage Act was, in my opinion, abused by the Trump administration to go after Julian Assange, but that's another story for another day. Um, They also have in here obstruction, which could be related to the fact that uh, we now know the Trump administration had been in contact with the FBI and the DOJ and the National Archives. They've been asking for these documents. They'd even been issued a subpoena previously for these documents, claimed they'd sent it over, and clearly that wasn't the case. So that could be what's playing into the obstruction charge that's listed, not charge, but criminal statute that's listed here. He's not been indicted. There haven't been any charges filed. The third law criminalizes, it's called Section 2071, criminalizes the theft or destruction of government documents. It makes it a crime punishable in part by up to three years in prison per offense for anyone with custody of any record or document from federal court or public office to willfully and unlawfully conceal, remove, mutilate, falsify, or destroy it. One thing that is of note that we can talk about more when we get into some of Trump's defenses is that none of these criminal statutes technically require the documents involved to be classified. Now, the Espionage Act in particular, um, there haven't been cases in the past where the documents weren't classified and there was a charge here. So it would be unusual to have an Espionage Act Espionage Act charge and not have the documents involved be classified. Um, However, it doesn't specifically mention classification in the language. It's actually a law that predates our system of classification. Um, And so if the the, the classification markings are sort of considered an indicator that this could be uh, a problem for our national defense, but not necessarily determinative. So that's the big picture. That's why I think it's actually probably worth stewing as much as possible on this, which yeah. is a lot of people looked at the actual inventory. There were five, four separate boxes, box 10A, 11A, 13A, and 14A, which were labeled as either miscellaneous secret documents, miscellaneous top secret documents, or miscellaneous confidential documents. So the reason that all of that qualification and classification matters is it refers to the various levels of classification. You both have like a normal level of classification, secret, top secret, then there's special compartmentalized information, which is very, very classified up into the quote-unquote need-to-know basis. Obviously, the president is the ultimate classification authority. So previously, and we will get to some of Trump's defense, where he speaks about classification and how his ability as president of the United States to declassify supersedes anything, it just bears the fact that all three of the laws that are cited specifically in the search warrant do not necessarily mean the information itself has to be classified. That being said, as you point pointed out these are very novel interpretations of the law, not even interpretation. They have not been tested yet in a court and especially not been tested against the former president of the United for, States. For the Espionage Act, that's the case. For the yeah. others, obstruction and, you know, the one that's like criminalizing the theft or destruction of government documents, that one, you know, it's it's widely accepted that that doesn't have to be classified documents. And mm-hmm. I think that they've been charged that way in the past. The Espionage Act one, As I said, the idea is the fact that the documents are classified is an indication to the court that these are documents that are very serious from a national security perspective. But you can imagine the situation where, you know, he's doing his, oh, I waved my hand and said they're declassified, but it's information that is clearly extremely sensitive. I mean, there's some reporting also that some of the documents had to do with our, you know, uh, human assets, like intelligence assets overseas. And um, when they talk about special access programs, this is the type of information that it 
literally no one can sort of take with them. You have to go and view it inside of one of these government skiffs that are designed for viewing the sorts of sort of sensitive information. So that's what we know about, you know, what was in the inventory list. That's what we know about what the uh, criminal statutes are that they, you know, were able to take to a federal judge and at least convince that judge that they had uh, likelihood that they would find evidence of these crimes at Mar-a-Lago. Um, so you've got Espionage Act, you've got obstruction, and then you've got, I think that last one, isn't that the one that Trump sort of beefed up because he wanted to- Yeah, that to was Section 207. On the libs with regards to Hillary. Right. Criminalizing the theft or destruction of government documents that makes it a crime punishable up to three years in prison for anyone with custody of any record or document from federal court or public office to willfully and unlawfully conceal, remove, mutilate, falsify, or destroy it. I also do think it's worth reading this particular line from the warrant. Agents were authorized to seize, quote, any government and or presidential records created between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021, obviously the dates that Trump was actually president of the United States, as well as, quote, any evidence of the knowing alteration destruction or concealment of any government and or presidential records or any documents with classification markings. So they had a very, very wide uh, of basically authority to seize whatever the hell they wanted yeah. in between that period. And right. in terms of the rooms that they were allowed to search, right. it was basically anything that wasn't, you know, where the guests are sa- staying in the mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, private club part of it, but any place where Trump might have been storing documents, his office, the basement in particular, um, they were authorized to go. And there was also reporting that's come out that uh, they were actually, you know, because they have closed, cur- closed circuit TV, they were able to watch the search. Yes. Um, the Trump people from, I think he was in New Jersey at Bedminster at that time. So um, interesting little detail there. Let's talk about the FBI. This is a very serious story. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Police went ahead and shot dead an armed man who tried to breach the Cincinnati, Ohio FBI building. This was all on Thursday where an armed standoff ensued where a man approached the FBI building in Cincinnati. He was basically pushed back from the FBI building onto a nearby interstate in kind of an hours-long standoff, eventually culminated in a gun battle, and he was shot dead by police who were on the scene. Later, the suspect was identified as Ricky Schiffer. He's a 42-year-old man. Now, Mr. Schiffer, let's go ahead and put this next one up on the screen, actually was at the Capitol on January 6th, a diehard Trump supporter. And what has really come out since then is not just his... uh, his presence on at the Capitol on January 6th, but a series of tweets, Crystal, that he sent, truths. not tweets, sorry, truths, truths yes. that he mm-hmm. sent um, uh, before all of this began. His very last truth actually was this, quote, well, I thought I had a way through bulletproof glass. I didn't. If you didn't hear from me, it's true. I tried attacking the FBI. It'll mean either I was taken off the internet, the FBI got me, or they sent the regular cops. Now, in previous truths, what he had said is, quote, it won't matter if we don't get violent. We see the courts are unfair and unconstitutional. All that is left is force. And he says, I'm having trouble getting information. He was citing, you know, previous YouTubers and others talking about people who are gathering outside of Mar-a-Lago. So, I mean, clearly Mr. Schiffer was like a diehard. He was Kind of Trump in. supporter. He was absolutely all in. And, and he attacked. thought he was fighting a war. Right. And this, this is where things get dicey. And I, you know, I hope, you know, we have a lot of people who of varying political stripes who watch this show 
And I would just say that there is nothing, you know, regarding this situation which is worth you laying down your life. So please don't do that. And unfortunately, we have seen, let's put this up there on the screen, of uh, Ken Klippenstein talking about the FBI and DHS issuing joint intelligence bullets to their entire staff, warning of, quote, the potential for domestic violent extremists to carry out attacks in reaction to the FBI recent execution of a court-authorized search in Palm Beach. We've seen also uh, some targeting of the actual FBI agents who were in charge of the raid itself, and just some other crazy stuff happening here in Washington. I want to be clear at the top. We have no idea uh, who this guy was who actually did what I'm about to tell you, but let's put this up there. Overnight, over the weekend, a man set his car on fire, drove into the barricade near the U.S. Capitol, very close to where our studio is here right now, started shooting indiscriminately, and ultimately shot and killed himself. So went ahead, drove his car into the barricade, shot indiscriminately, and ultimately killed himself. Was he a crazy person? Nobody knows. Ran himself into the barricade. Now, to be clear, it is not uncommon. We've had barricade incidents in the past. Yeah. We had some Nation of Islam people, you know, like earlier this year. and other, So it's not like it doesn't happen at least once or twice a year. But obviously the timing happening so close to what happened with the FBI, everybody's on very, very high alert. Yeah. I think that, you know, I just, again, like, look, nothing is worth taking up arms and going to go shoot. At least, you know, currently, uh, probably won't be there ever in our lifetime. More what I'm saying is that Tensions are high. There's a lot of irresponsible rhetoric. And actually, I want to call back to what you discussed in our our earlier block, which is when Trump conveyed to the Department of Justice, he was like, hey, there's a lot of people who are very upset. How can I, quote unquote, bring down the heat? I think this may be what he was referring to, because also politically, what do we know, which is that events like January 6th and more, I mean, it's not like it isn't ultimately used against many of the people for the cause that they were supposedly, you know, trying to do. And, it, it, and it, could, it could ignite more of a police state. It only justifies yeah. more of a police state. Right. Like, ultimately, if your end is to reduce the police state, yeah. you are, that is not the impact you right. are going to have here. Yeah, this guy reportedly showed up at the FBI office with a nail gun and an assault rifle. I guess maybe he thought the nail gun was going to pierce the bulletproof. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Glass. Um, yeah. And I, I do want to, I want to read a little bit more of mm-hmm. what he posted because I think it's kind of important. Just like, you know, we've, we've dug into the, the manifesto of right. that uh, white supremacist killer. And it, I think it's really important to understand the mindset. And especially when you have right-wing commentators who, listen, it's a free country, you can say what you say, but I, the mm-hmm. rhetoric is wildly irresponsible. But, you know, Stephen Crowder out there, like, tomorrow is war, sleep well, Charlie Kirk saying similar things. Like, really? He said that? Yes. That's terrible. I mean, yeah. it's, people, you may think it's all a game and that people aren't really taking you that seriously, but this asshole was taking you seriously. And so he was truthing um, <laughs> the following. He said, people, this is it. I hope a call to arms comes from someone better qualified. But if not, this is your call to arms from me. He goes on, go to the Army-Navy store, et cetera, et cetera. They've been conditioning us to accept tyranny and think we can't do anything for two years. This time we must respond with force. If you know of any protests or attacks, please post here. Somebody replies and says, are you proposing terrorism? To which he said, very important question. No, I am proposing War. Be ready to kill the enemy, not mass shootings where leftists go, not lighting buses on fire with transsexuals in them, not finding people with leftist signs in their yards and beating them up. Violence is not all terrorism. Kill the FBI on sight. Be ready to take down other active enemies of the people and those who try to prevent you from doing it. So all of this over-the-top 
rhetoric about this is a civil war and it's 1776 and sleep well, tomorrow's all this stuff. This guy believed you. He believed you and committed an act of terrorism yeah, I mean, he and violence. Yeah, his own life. Tried right? to murder an FBI agents and, you know, and yeah, ultimately ended up dead himself. So again, I'm a major free speech advocate. We both are. Absolutely. But if you Which have relates a platform, to what we're about to discuss. Yeah, <laughs> if you have a platform, be responsible. Think about the people who are listening to you and who are taking actually literally seriously the words that are coming out of your mouth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it, it's, it is important that you read that. People need to understand like how deranged. So it's also just always remarkable to me how similar all radical rhetoric actually is. Yeah, yeah, you could replace that in, with like Black Panthers in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, right. <laughs> it really, really, literally Muslim extremists. The same thing. Yep. Um, anyway, look, let's let's wait for the facts. Let's see what it is. I understand the tensions are high, and if anybody's out there talking about war. Shut your mouth because, first of all, you're probably not going to be the one actually doing anything. And it's actual people like this guy. I don't know this guy's story, but, you know, I don't want to see anybody die for no good reason. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Uh, Sagar and I were discussing yesterday. It certainly seems like the news yes. comes in waves, tidal waves at times. Yes. And uh, it's definitely a feast, not a famine moment mm-hmm. in terms of news. Um, all kinds of new developments about the various inquiries that uh, Trump and his allies are facing, including Rudy Giuliani being told that he is, in fact, the target of a probe. We also have <laughs> interesting back and forth between Trump and the FBI about did they take his passports? Do they still have his passports? What does it all mean? So we'll get into that. Uh, the Justice Department saying, arguing in court that they do not want the affidavit of uh, giving all of the reasons why they wanted to conduct this search. They do not want that released to the public. So we have those details. Also, t- today is another primary day. A mm-hmm. couple of interesting races on the ballot. I'm going to be taking a look at Sarah Palin and Liz Cheney. We also have some new indications about some of the midterm races. Republicans continuing to struggle with fundraising in a way that is quite surprising major turnaround from how things were going for them uh, previously and maybe the most hilarious unintentionally hilarious campaign video I've ever seen coming from Dr. Oz no bueno Dr. Oz yes let's just say it involves the word crudite it involves French which is (laughs) you're already going on the wrong Uh, um, also some interesting info about the housing market Uh, people expect a crash but actually also a lot of people cheering for a crash who have not been able to buy a home and would like to be able to uh, and a New York Times endorsement that uh, d- failed to disclose a major conflict of interest. Yes. Uh, we also have Jeff Stein on today to break down the Inflation Reduction Act, which has now passed the House um, mm-hmm. and is going to be the law of the land. So dig into all of that. Now, as Crystal alluded to, when it rains, it pours. It certainly comes with this Trump raid in the FBI. The more details that we are learning. So as we had talked about previously, now we have the search warrant. We have the inventory list. We know it involves some sort of classified documents. We also know that in terms of the three laws that were cited by the FBI in their search warrant, none of the documents necessarily even have to be classified. Simply having the classification markings may be enough in order to violate the Espionage Act. Furthermore, we are also aware by open reporting that the Trump lawyers themselves, at least one lawyer, had signed a message to the FBI in June claiming that all classified marking documents had been delivered back to the FBI. Again, opening themselves up for investigation, ultimately what led to the search warrant itself. As I said yesterday, part of the problem with the search warrant is we don't know a lot about the facts and the actual investigation that led to said search warrant actually being executed. And as I was saying, I was really hoping we get the affidavit. Well, news organization, 
think like-mindedly, all are filing in requests in order for the Department of Justice to release the actual affidavit themselves. And now we are learning from the Department of Justice in their protest of doing so, so a little bit more about their investigation. Let's throw this up there on the screen. In a new filing that came out late last night, in a response to organizations' request to unseal the affidavit, the Department of Justice says that it is objecting to the unsealing of that Trump search warrant. Throw the next one up there on the screen, please. Part of the reason why that they are objecting is because the FBI affidavit, and let's pay very close attention to this language, people, makes reference to, quote, cooperating witnesses. And the DOJ says that their identities need to remain protected. Second, the Department of Justice confirms the investigation, quote, implicates highly classified materials. So, why do those two things matter? Number one, in terms of the classification, uh, obviously it upholds the general contours, but they're making it and saying that it is in such highly sensitive documents that even describing themselves, as we saw in the FBI inventory, it just said highly classified documents, it didn't say anything, that it in and of itself, they say, would threaten national security. But really what I think it is, is that they said and confirmed that they have cooperating, well, they didn't confirm they have cooperating witnesses, but they said unsealing it would cause undue harm to any cooperating witnesses they may have. Gives a significant amount of credence to that theory that there is some sort of FBI mole, rat, whatever you want to describe it, in the operation. It could be a member of the Trump legal team. It could be a Secret Service agent. It could be any of the number of people who are around Donald Trump himself. And then uh, finally, some language that they used in their objection to the unsealing. The third one, let's please put it up there, is that they said disclosure of the warrant affidavit would irreparably harm the government's ongoing criminal investigation because there had been some speculation here, Crystal, on whether the search warrant was an end in and of itself Mm. to just seize the documents, not part of an ongoing and active criminal investigation. So those are, I would say, the three main things that we have learned from this filing. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to read the tea leaves on all this stuff as best we can, the little bit of limited information. It would be so um, interesting to see all of the details of this affidavit. And certainly as someone who works in the news business, I would very much, very (laughs) much love for them to disclose this. Ultimately, it's not surprising, though, um, because, you know, I think there's there's two considerations. One is they don't want to compromise their investigation. They don't want Trump and his allies to know exactly how they were able to glean all of this information. They certainly don't want them to know who the rat or multiple rats. What's like the, what, is it a warren of rats? Uh, a den of I don't rats? Actually, I don't know. It's a den of rats, I de- believe. Anyway, yeah. uh, they don't want them to know the yeah. identities of those people. <laughs> and you mentioned it could be someone on his legal team. I mean, yeah. the more I think about that, the more I wonder if that actually makes a lot of sense. Right. Because, you know, if you think about it, they're trying to help him work with it through this issue with the National Archives. He's maybe potentially telling them like, yeah, of course, I, I handed over everything. And if they discover that that's not the case, they could find themselves in potential legal jeopardy. So you may have someone involved here who's trying to save their own ass by informing on Trump and giving uh, the FBI the information that ultimately they put into this affidavit and help to uh, secure this search warrant. So those are the major uh, revelations here. Now, it is theoretically possible that the judge could say, uh, no, government, I don't agree. We're going to go ahead and unseal the affidavit. But that is highly, highly unlikely, especially with the government making the case that the affidavit should remain sealed. And as I said before, I'm not really sure that Trump would also want this to be 
unsealed um, because, you know, ultimately then you end up with a situation where he's sort of being tried in the court of public opinion. Um, an affidavit is not the same as a trial. There are things in there that could turn out to, you know, not pan out. It may be more suggestive than based on, you know, concrete. Here's what we know happened. So um, so anyway, not clear to me that he would really be in favor of this being released either. Yeah, affidavits aren't like statements of fact. It's like the government's case against somebody in a court in order to justify a search warrant. So like you said, it would include no pushback from the Trump legal team. It would simply be the right, FBI their agents. Their side of the story. Their entire side yeah. of the story. And actually, I have personally learned the hard way covering terrorism cases. I mean, if think about it. If you read the Gretchen Whitmer just affidavit, yes, you'd be like, like oh, oh my God, there's a horrific kidnapping plot going on. Then you're like, oh, hold on a second here. And by the way, we, we should cover that trial soon in terms of some of the stuff that's coming out, even more so about FBI behavior. But what's remarkable to me about this is just the admission, both on the criminal investigation side and on the cooperating witness. I think the fact that I think it was always expected that they would not release the affidavit, but by objecting to the affidavit and specifically saying why they don't want to release it, yeah. that tells us a little bit about what's happening. Also, probably confirms, honestly, I mean, at this point, Crystal, we don't know how much more is going to come out about this investigation because yeah. this kind of is it, at least for the next couple of months, barring leaks, of course. I'm talking at a very official level. Probably. Yeah. Um, uh, there was one other piece of reporting I saw come out yesterday from the Wall Street Journal that was in direct contradiction to, remember that original? Newsweek report that basically said this whole search was basically kind of a freelance operation yes. from the Miami FBI mm-hmm. office, and they were kind of in a bubble and didn't realize this would be so politically explosive. Well, the latest um, information reporting from the Wall Street Journal says, no, no, no. They weighed this very carefully. Merrick Garland weighed this for weeks mm. before he decided to go in and, um, you know, really considered the the costs and the benefits and the extraordinary measure that this was. So, um, you know, take from that what you will. But the very latest indication, which I think is backed up by the fact that Merrick Garland did give that press conference saying, taking ownership and saying, no, it was, I was the one who made right. this decision. I think it backs up, um, you know, that, that fact and really shows that they definitely thought long and hard before they went ahead and, and did this, whether you think it was ultimately the right call or not. Yeah, I think that that's right. So anyway, lots of deliberation, uh, a confirmation about a so-called cooperating witness, uh, the criminal investigation piece, obviously. To be clear, we don't actually know who the target of that criminal investigation is. But anyway, take that. A little bit of a midterm update here for you. Uh, Interesting uh, new details about some honestly quite surprising fundraising issues that the Republican Senate uh, candidates are having in particular. Let's put this up on the screen. So they say the Senate GOP campaign arm slashes TV ad buys in three states in a sign that fundraising trouble is taking a serious toll. A key political committee cancels ad plans in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, they have cut now more than $5 million in Pennsylvania, including their reservations in the Philly media market. Um, they've also slashed reservations in Wisconsin in the Madison and Green Bay markets. Those have been curtailed by more than $2 million. In Arizona, all reservations after September 30th have been cut in Phoenix and Tucson. That is the state's only two major media markets, amounting to roughly $2 million more. So far, around $10 million has been canceled as of midday Monday, though more changes to the fall reservations were in progress. Now, in fairness, um, the response from the Republican Senatorial Committee was basically like, look, we're not canceling these, we're moving money around, we're reallocating. 
marketing, whatever. But um, if you look overall, it's pretty clear that they've pulled back from the amount that they are Mm -hmm. spending in these states and in these media markets. This comes on the heels of another report that we had covered here as well that showed that the total amount of online donations to Republican candidates, direct candidates, so not to the senatorial committee, but directly to the candidates, has actually been falling. So it fell by more than 12 percent in the second quarter compared with the first quarter, according to an analysis of WinRed. That's the main online Republican fundraising platform. And that's very unusual. Usually, as you get closer to an election, online donations go up and up and up. So the fact that in the second quarter they saw them fall off was quite significant. Republicans said, well, it's inflation. It's a bad economy. So, of course, our people are getting hit. However, Democratic contributions at the same time surged, and Democrats are living in the same country with the same economy. Their uh, contributions on Act Blue jumped by more than 21%. So I suppose when you look at this entire picture, it seems pretty clear that they're having some fundraising struggles. And to tie it back, Sagar, to what we're talking about with Trump potentially announcing for president before the midterms, part of their issue is that he sucks up so much of the online fundraising. Um, He's a total pig when it comes to like, you know, he's super greedy. Doesn't dole it out. Abusing, yeah, doesn't dole it out. Really hitting those fundraising lists over and over and over again and has so centered the party around the person of himself that, yeah, that's where the grassroots base is overwhelmingly giving. And you can only imagine that if he does announce for president before the midterm election, that's only going to, you know, only going to exacerbate some of the fundraising issues that the rest of the party is having right now. Yeah. And actually, Politico had a story out this morning where they say that the midterm election campaign and the NRSC's decision to cancel millions of dollars is actually also a commentary on the inability of states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina to raise enough money. So essentially what they're saying is that J.D. Vance, uh, Doug Mastriano, and uh, sorry, Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz, and also in North Carolina are not raising enough money on their own. And so they need to be able to pull money away from other states and slash budgets so that they can bombard the airwaves. Yeah. And this has never happened before. It's also the case that they shouldn't have had to spend money in Ohio. Right. I mean, Ohio should have been a gimme. They right. shouldn't have had to worry about that state. They're having to worry about, you know, they're having to pour more resources into a place like Georgia that also, frankly, in a year like this, should have been mm-hmm. a gimme, even with an incumbent Democrat in place right now. So the fact that, you know, their candidates have dramatically underperformed, both in terms of their positioning with the electorate, but also in terms of their fundraising ability, has put them in a bit of a squeeze. Um, I think also the fact that a number of these candidates have no electoral experience. So they haven't built out, they haven't done fundraising before. And just like anything else, political fundraising is a skill. It takes time to learn. Um, It really sucks having, you know, being someone who dialed for dollars uh, long ago, I can tell you (laughs) it is no fun to do whatsoever. Um, But it takes time to like build out those specific political donor networks. And so if you have all of this slate of brand new candidates who have never done this before, you know, there are other advantages to having outsiders who don't have a sort of like electoral track record in that baggage. But one of the downsides of um, of going with these sorts of candidates is they don't have uh, established sort of networks and established abilities in fundraising. And I think that is a drag on them. That's right a now. point Kyle Kondik made. And I think yeah. it's an excellent point. You know, at the same time, the Democrats are <laughs> washing cash, like a lot of cash in many of these specific states and are hitting Republicans where it hurts. Really interesting story here. Let's put this up there, which is that in all of the battleground states, Democrats are going all in on abortion in terms of their messaging. 
as basically we predicted here on the show. And given the results of what happened in Kansas and in many of the special elections that we have now seen, it seems like a good choice. And you'll see there this four different screenshots from ads in Arizona, blanketing the ads space in Blake Masters, who had previously alluded to wanting a national ban on abortion. I think he's going to come to regret that one in terms of his messaging. Tudor Dixon, who is the so-called, you know, moderate nominee. She has said previously she doesn't want any exceptions for rape or incest in an abortion law, and they're, of course, putting that and highlighting that. Doug Mastriano specifically saying in May, quote, my body, my choice is ridiculous nonsense, and they're calling him Doug Mastriano, make all abortion illegal, and even in Alaska saying Alaskans should have a right to choose. Alaska being probably a much more kind of libertarian type state, but really it just shows you that across all of these states, all swings, all of them are immediately picking on abortion as their top issue that they're spending money. That Apparently, even with uh, Michigan and Tudor Dixon, they're not talking about election conspiracy, nothing. It's just all abortion. Georgia, they're doing the same thing. And Arizona and – yeah, Arizona and Pennsylvania, I think, are going to be the most significant given – Arizona, of course, is a conservative state, you know, but also went for Biden. But as I alluded to, you know, are going to have a little bit more of a – libertarian ethos, Pennsylvania also, I mean, a true actual swing. And that is where a place like that to say actually no exceptions whatsoever. That's just, you look, no matter how you feel, in terms of public opinion, that does not track with public opinion. Yeah. So that is a, it's an issue. Extremely fringe view. Yeah. Yeah, And and the case that they're making, um, the sort of like broader portrait they're trying to paint is like, you know, look guys, you might not be thrilled with the Biden administration and how the economy is going right now. But these people are crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, they are out there. They are way too extreme. They are sort of ideologues and zealots. And so abortion is the entree to making that larger case that, you know, these candidates are are way too out of the mainstream for you to ultimately elect. Just to give you some of the numbers on this, because I do think it's really interesting, Democrats um, have spent nearly eight times as much as Republicans on ads talking about abortion. $31.9 million just this far spent on abortion ads compared with $4.2 million on the Republican side. And in the closest Senate and governor's contest, Republicans have spent virtually nothing countering the Democrats' offensive. Now, um, I've seen Democrats make this mistake in the past where they're getting hit on an issue that they're taking on water. I think CRT is a good example yep. of that. And they just try to, like, let's not talk about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Like, you have to respond. You have to give your side of the story. You have to lay out, no, here's what my actual views are. Here's why that's wrong. Or here's why I believe what I believe. Just sort of staying quiet on this and hoping it goes away, I don't think is going to be a good strategy here. And a lot of what they're doing in these campaigns is they're using these abortion ads as like the opening message. So to define these candidates out of the gates as like, these people are extreme and then they move on to whatever the broader case is that they ultimately want to make. I thought it was interesting that a quote here from uh, Anna Greenberg. She's a Democratic pollster, but the way she phrases it is, rarely has an issue been handed on a silver platter to Democrats that is so clear-cut. It took an election that was going to be mostly about inflation and immigration and made it also about abortion. And the polling at this point is really clear that there was a shift after the Dobbs decision. And this is a very different race than it was before the Dobbs decision. The generic ballot is basically tied. You have a much better chance of Democrats being able to hold on to the Senate. 
I still would maintain, given how the polls have been biased um, against Republicans and in favor of Democrats, that Republicans are still very much the favorite, that the landscape still very much favors them. But um, Democrats, in a rare act of political intelligence, have done a few things that have given them a long-shot chance to have a better midterm than was previously expected. Yeah, I think that's right. So, Although it doesn't take a genius to figure this one out, looking at polling data. <laughs> but yeah, Listen, that hasn't stopped them before. Yes, so they have, you know, yeah. in the past gone out of their way to do the dumbest possible right. thing. So um, we'll give them, we'll damn them with fake praise here. Okay, and uh, this is a little bit of a look at why the Republicans are having some issues here because I continue to maintain this election, when you look at it, like the further you step back and look at the macro, you know, oh, the economy, inflation, wrong track, right? Biden's approval numbers, the more you're like, oh, Republicans are going to just clean up. It's going to be a shellacking. And the closer you zoom in at the actual races and the actual candidates, the more you're like, Oh, this is not going too well. All right, let's talk about housing. This is a hilarious study, Crystal, that you found. Let's put this up there on the screen, which is that right now we're obviously in the middle of a housing slowdown. And it turns out that a lot of people are actually pretty happy about that. So right now, 78% of Americans expect to have a housing market crash. This is according to the latest consumer affairs study, which is a major consumer information service that businesses buy in order to tell what consumer sentiment is. However, 63% of those people actually want to see a housing crash. And if you dig deeper, 75% of people say they have cash stored away to buy a house should the market crash. They actually have an actual crash savings account. Dig even deeper than that, and you find that the youngest generation of adults, Generation Z, is actually the most eager for the crash. 84% are hoping for a housing crash and actually have some money that is saved up specifically in order to try and take advantage should this all happen. And look, perhaps they will get their wish. Let's put this up there. That U.S. home builder confidence right now is at the worst slump since 2007. As I actually have said before, that's a big problem because home builder confidence means that people who are, let's say, like halfway through a project may actually not finish their project. And if they don't finish their project, then we are going to continue to having a massive housing shortage across the nation. Right. But I just think it's crazy. I mean, when is the last time that you've had a sizable chunk of Americans who are like, no, I want these markets to crash? And I think it's because of the disparate ownership, which is predominantly Absolutely. it's the wealth class and boomers who hold property. Everybody else is frozen out of the market or frozen out far more so than they have been in previous generations. So they're like, yeah, screw you. I want this thing to crash so that I can buy in. And especially Gen Z. I mean, for Gen Z, they, they don't have a chance of, of buying a house. Like uh, realistically, on average, even if you live in a, you know, a, like a normal metropolitan area, it is just mostly unattainable without decades of savings. And if you have student debt or credit card debt, it's almost entirely out of the question. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is becoming the real dividing, the real class dividing yeah. line is, you know, asset owners and not. And mm -hmm. of course, the primary asset that most Americans own is a home. Um, if you aren't able to get your foot on in that, you know, door of home ownership, it becomes very difficult for you to sort of establish that, you know, a base of some sort of net wealth, a base of financial 
middle class or working class stability. Um, and so I, I have been wondering, as we've been covering the housing market a lot here, as you guys know, I've actually been wondering about these numbers of like how many people are listening to this and hoping <laughs> that the housing prices and the market crashes because then that gives them some hope and possibility that they will be able to at some point in their life also buy a home and have the stability that can come with that. Um, and now we have the numbers to back it up. So I did think that was really interesting. I mean, the problem, of course, is that the reason that the housing market is falling off and you have this, um, you know, uh, home builder sentiment at the lowest level since the housing market collapsed in 2007 is because as the Fed hikes rates, the thing that is most sensitive to it is the mortgage rates. And as the mortgage rates go up, yeah, the top line number might be going down, but in terms of your monthly payment, mm -hmm. that is going up and up. So, it's really, you know, even if the market continues to go down and have problems and um, housing overall, the sales price becomes more affordable, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easier for you to get your foot in the door. And then the other problem here, of course, is that, you know, the real issues we have in our economy are about supply, about a lack of supply. And that is certainly the case in the housing market where we have not built sufficient housing stock, especially post the last financial crash, to um, accommodate a large and growing population. When you have those interest rates going up, you have a slump in home building. And that then, again, exacerbates the price and the shortage in the, you know, home supply market. So there's a lot of complicating factors here that make it unlikely that even if the market really does crash, unless you're in a position to just plunk down, you know, 500K yeah, in cash, yeah. that you're still going to be in a very difficult position when it comes to acquiring a home. And I think that um, is reflected in the concerns of renters as well. 91% of them fear that increased mortgage rates will price them out of the home buying true. market. I mean, almost so, certainly true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is definitely the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I, your caution is warranted, which is that, yeah, look, the price may come down, but like, how are you supposed to afford it if the price does go down? Do you have enough cash in order to uh, make sure that you don't do that? Otherwise, you end up paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. And just because you may have, you know, people said that average person has like 15 grand or something. People who are saving for a house have something like 15 grand saved away. I mean, how are you supposed to make any sort of down payment uh, with only $15,000 or even $29,000, which is that the on average for anybody who's not Gen Z. So look, it's a cluster basically all the way around because at the same time, I mean, you don't want retirees to see their main source of wealth just dwindle away, possibly what they were betting on in order to make sure that they didn't have to work anymore. So all the way, it's just not good. The solution generally is actually probably lower rates and just ton more housing. Yeah. How you achieve that Without also feeding the wealth gap, I, I genuinely just have no it's, idea. It's it's like, keep, keep the rates low yeah, that mortgages so people can afford are it. affordable. Right. Um, and then you need, in addition to the uh, government help in terms of securing securing a mortgage, you also need some help with that initial down payment so that it's not yep. just people who have rich parents who are like fronting their down payment that can get a house. And then you need rules basically blocking permanent capital from buying up the existing available housing stock mm -hmm. because that's the other problem. And as you said, you need to build a whole lot more housing. So I guess the bottom line here is, you know, the same moral of the story that we uh, have a lot of times when we talk about the Fed, which is that like the Fed 
messing around with interest interest rates is not going to fix the problems in the housing market. They right. don't have the tools at their disposal to, you know, create a lot more housing stock to help people get that initial down payment to block private equity and other permanent capital for buying up entire communities so that, you know, they're able to come in with all cash and basically muscle out every first-time home buyer from the market. Those are things that only legislators in Congress and, you know, some executive action can do. And since we have a more or less dysfunctional political system, that is not really on the table at this point. Yeah. And, you know, hilariously enough, literally as we're filming this, uh, the U.S. housing start numbers came out in terms of the number of building permits and starts on single family housing. And it plunged 18.8 percent year over year just for see, this month, and 9% this is, in the last month. See, and yeah. this is this is the problem with the Fed increasing interest yeah. rates. Is it actually, it's not just that it's, you know, dealing with some of the, the wrong problems and causing a lot of pain for people and potentially triggering a recession. It actually is actively exacerbating the supply issues that led to inflation in some of these categories to start with. And I think that's a perffect mm-hmm. example of that. Yeah, there we go. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Uh, Lots of interesting stories that we are digging into this morning. So a major admission from the CDC about just how badly they screwed up coronavirus. Um, They are also now screwing up monkeypox. So clearly they didn't really learn their lessons from the first time. But (laughs) pretty interesting to dig into their own analysis of what went wrong and what needs to change. We'll break all of that down for you. Um, Also some new details about that search at Mar-a-Lago. Some reporting indicating that this has to do with Russiagate documents. It always does, doesn't it? Always comes back to Russiagate (laughs) in the end, doesn't it? All things stem from there. So um, we'll talk to you about that reporting and uh, everything that's going on there. Also, as we brought you yesterday, Liz Cheney was, in fact, defeated, um, really in quite a landslide in her uh, state there of Wyoming. She is now floating a presidential run. And, of course, we had many cringe takes from Mm, the media that we have to bring you as well. So some updates for you there. Also, Jared Kushner uh, has a new book coming out. I know you guys are all very excited. And it is already being panned in spectacular fashion, like across the spectrum Mm -hmm. from the right, right to the, the New left. York Times. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, we've got some some details for you there as well. And uh, Rachel Maddow's replacement, Alex Wagner, launched her show, official debut, had some teleprompter problems there at the front. And uh, we have some updates for you in terms of the ratings. Also very excited, bringing back a little panel action yes. today. Ryan Grimm and Emily Chashinsky are going to join us remotely to break down some of the latest polls in the midterms. And uh, we'll get a check from them on everything that they are looking at and thinking about. Um, Before we jump into the show, live show. Live show. Tickets on sale (laughs) September 16th. I feel like I'm going to go mad selling these tickets. All right. Center Stage Theater, Atlanta, 16th of September, 7.30 p.m. Standard time. We will be there on Friday. It's going to be a fun time. Everybody can come out. We'll have a great time. We'll have a great show for everybody. Go ahead and buy your tickets. Less than a month out. We are already planning travel and we're finalizing some of the plans there for the show. So go ahead and buy those tickets. For the premium members, uh, as we had discussed, we are going to be sending out those two things. 
things. Also, I'm aware of the fact that our email delivery system is not working uh, as well as originally promised. We're working on that. Uh, tell us today if it doesn't come faster. We're piloting a few different programs and we're going to figure it out. Always paying attention to you guys. But let's go ahead and start with the show and let's throw this up there on the screen from the CDC. So you guys might have seen that the CDC reversed direction, but I actually think in the context of what was announced yesterday, we are seeing a monumental self-assessment happening at our nation's major public health agency, which is that the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, saying that the botched pandemic response is calling for a full-scale reorganization. Now, personally, I don't think that even goes far enough, but the fact that the public health authorities, some 26 months or so into the pandemic, are basically admitting that they dramatically screwed up both performance, messaging, uh, so many different basic elements from the beginning all the way really up until today is remarkable. And they led an internal or a reorganization and assessment panel, Crystal, which was actually chaired by some people at the Department of Health and the CDC with interviews of over 120 people inside and outside of the agency. And it is remarkable what even these people, like the government is the most immune thing to self-criticism mm-hmm. and self-assessment. Even they're like, yeah, we screwed this one up pretty bad. And they're like, it's time for a major change to this agency. Some of the things that they point to is that they're going to have to undo many of their bureaucratic biases. But their second, and I think the most important, is they said we need to have very clear messaging. My, I love also, though, yeah. that they um, they kind of blame the American people when they say this. So they said, quote, this is Dr. David Dowdy. He's an epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins School. He says, messaging to the general public needs to be, quote, very clear, very simple, very straightforward, culture is changing. We needed to change faster in terms of CDC. So he's basically blaming like pop culture and social media for, you know, not reacting to what the CDC said in a like a timely manner, as if it wasn't the initial CDC messages themselves were at fault. But I think at a very high basic level to have the nation's top public health agency admit to the American people, we screwed this up dramatically. I mean, they themselves are yeah. calling for a full-scale reorganization of their own agency, and we should push very, very hard to make sure that we see the correct things. But, I mean, that is just, it took too long, but I mean, it's probably better than nothing. Oh, at least they admit it. I'm, I'm pretty surprised right. that they had this level of right. self-assessment. And I mean, she made some pretty, Dr. Walensky made some pretty direct comments. She told the agency, to be frank, we were responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes yeah. from testing to data to communications. Um, and we're going to go through a little reminder trip down memory lane what some of those were. But I think in the early days of the pandemic, they actually escaped a lot of scrutiny because oh, yeah. Trump was screwing up so, so badly. Um, and so there was a sense of like, oh my God, if we just had like a different guy in charge, then our public health agencies would be able to do what they do and what they're expert at. But as time wore on, it became clear that those bureaucracies were also completely failing and in some really basic and very, very significant ways that threw off our response from the jump and also really diminished public trust. Mm -hmm. And that was as big of a problem as anything as we then moved into the vaccine phase and you had a large population say, we're just not really sure that your guidance is accurate after the things that we heard before. So um, the fact that they're acknowledging it, she speaks directly to uh, 
unclear communication. She speaks to the fact that they, at times, would have data that would be useful for making decisions on things like booster shots that they were reluctant to release to the public. And the reason that they were reluctant to put it out there sooner was because the promotion system within the CDC was based much more on, like, how many academic papers you had published than on really protecting the public and doing your job in terms of a public health official. So the incentives were all screwed up. So people wanted to hold on to the data until they got their little paper published so that they could get, you know, a gold star for that rather than really having as their number one priority getting critical information out to the public. And that saga is one of the things that she spoke to the most Mm -hmm. was that the orientation of the agency was more about sort of like academia and research and that was how you were promoted than it was directly directed at being super responsive, being super fast, and serving the public. But, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to talk about monkeypox in a little bit, but one of the biggest failures was on communications. I mean, Dr. Walensky herself was criticized for her communication style and I think had to bring in a public speaking coach and media training. Which the government paid for, Right, so, um, you know, this reflects on her as well. But the fact that you had... um, You had public health officials and continue to have public health officials who are uncomfortable just telling the public the truth because they're worried that the public can't handle the truth. That is a massive, massive issue. It's not your job to be managing the emotions and psychoanalyzing the American public. You have to trust that people can handle the unvarnished facts about what is going on, what the risk factors are, what the risk vectors are, and how you should respond. You have to trust the public to be able to handle the basic facts. Otherwise, you're going to end up with exactly the muddle that we had in coronavirus and that we also are seeing with monkeypox. Yeah, and we put together a a list. And so, look, I know everybody's got their own pet peeves, but what we wanted to try and focus on was the very, very early failures, pre-vaccine. And the ones that are, like, totally indisputable. (laughs) Indisputable. Like, beyond even the vaccination policy. I think first and foremost was we should all remember the very, very early days of the pandemic, whenever the coronavirus was ripping through China, Europe was having lockdowns, Italy, January of 2020. There was a lot of questions. It was like, what the hell is going on here? And one of the major ones on COVID was, does this spread via surfaces, via particles, aka leading to the whole wash your hands discussion, or is this an airborne transmitted virus? Now, the real questions surrounded that, and we will also remember that the Chinese lied to the WHO, famous tweet, January of 2020, WHO says China data shows that this is not an airborne transmissible virus. I mean, who knows how many deaths that that led to in the early days, and actually misguided public health messaging. We should remember it took until May of 2021, mid-vaccination campaign, let's throw this up there on the screen, for the CDC to finally acknowledge airborne transmission. It took them a year and a half almost in order for them to actually update their official guidance. And the reason that I chose this one to start is that that shows us, Crystal, a 16-month backlog as to when the data is clear as day, everybody knows it, to a final official guidance revisory. And imagine the level of bureaucratic mishap and more to acknowledge the most basic fact and truth about a virus and then to have it 
be known to the general public, to be known to the medical community for, for, for hundreds of thousands of people, not only in this country, millions across the world, to be dead, for them to finally update their guidance. That was number one. That was one of the initial screw-ups. Yeah. Number two was the masks. I mean, this one we can beat to death, you know, forever. <laughs> Let's go put this, it probably this have, one to death, frankly. probably. But. Let's throw this up there, right? This is the timeline um, from the LA Times on mass guidance. We should remember the U.S. Surgeon General at the very beginning of the pandemic in February of 2020 urged the U.S. public in all caps, quote, stop buying masks. This wow. was up until May. So two months, uh, actually really almost three, of initial spread across this nation of coronavirus, you had the CDC and public health authorities all the way up to the top of the White House basically saying masks do not work. He said specifically, quote, masks are not effective in preventing general public from catching coronavirus if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients. It puts them in our community at risk. So hold on a second. If it's not effective, it's stopping, but then why do healthcare providers need them? Well, we later find out through an admission from Dr. Anthony Fauci, the reason why that this message was concocted was basically to stop Americans from buying masks and from in order to keep the stock right. for public health. Here's what I've always said this, which is that if they had just been honest with the American people and been like, listen, we have a shortage. Please don't buy them. We need the N95s for our hospitals. I think people would have, uh, yeah. I think people would have stood by that. And actually, I actually always point to myself. When that happened, I was like, yeah, I don't believe you. And I bought a bunch of N95s yeah. on Amazon. If somebody had told me, don't buy an N95 uh, because healthcare, I absolutely wouldn't have purchased it. Yeah. But it was more out of distrust. I was like, I think this is bullshit. Well, I mean, so, it didn't make sense. I remember us yeah, talking about it this yeah. time. We're like, so why is it helpful in mm -hmm. a public health setting? Right. But it's not helpful in general. Yes. Like, this just really doesn't add up. And then I think why this one and why we do harp on this one so much is because it really demonstrates this problem of rather than just doing their job and saying, here are the facts, mm -hmm. here are the science, here's the risks, here's the studies that back it up. They tried to massage the emotions of the American public, tried to engineer the outcomes that they wanted, and were fearful that the public could not deal with the actual facts as they exist. And so, you know, they have no—they actually admitted— that this is what they were doing, that they were lying to you because they were worried you would go out and hog up all the masks and then frontline healthcare workers who were in dire need of masks and who, you know, were screwed over by our supply chain issues and the fact that yes. stuff all came from China, um, that they would have what they need. So this is, to me, such a perfect crystallization of what they have continued to fail on. And even then, once we got the acknowledgement, okay, yeah, masks do work. And mm. then we go in the other direction of, okay, you got to have masks everywhere, yes. inside, outside. Even if sometimes they don't work. <laughs> schools, et cetera. Then yeah. there was a reluctance to acknowledge that certain masks are kind of useless right. and certain masks are better. I mean, there was always just a reluctance to be straight with the American people when there was a concern that it might lead to giving, you know, skeptics a talking point or it might lead to some outcome that the public health officials were fearful about. I understand it's a natural, I guess, human instinct to try to micromanage these things, but ultimately, that ain't your job. If society has a problem as a result of the accurate guidance that you give, we have to deal with that downstream. But up front, you have to trust this is a democracy. Grownups are going to behave in an adult way and take in this information in an accurate way. And I just, you know, I think back to that time, Sagar, and mm -hmm. how— 
scary it was for everybody. Um, I think about how, you know, how much we were all just trying to figure out what the hell was going on and how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. And the fact that we did not feel that we had a reliable um, entity here that was just giving us what they actually knew in real time made it so much more difficult to sort through what was fact and what was fiction. Absolutely. Tests is another one. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. You know, people really forget this, but we did not have reliable testing in this country for several months. And even then, you know, it took a while for PCR, government-provided tests, and then Total there was a lot of controversy even around the PCR, around the level of cycles, and, you know, what exactly they were running for, whether they were too sensitive or not. And part of the reason why is, again, total bureaucratic screw-up. Essentially what happened is that the CDC basically said, no, we're going to create our own test versus buying existing tests. So while Europe and many other countries had far better testing, immediate testing, that was available to their general public and was able to lead to you know more quarantines of the right people instead of having to quarantine or ask population-wide concerns, we didn't have that for several months. And that led to what? People just risked it. People basically didn't trust it anymore. Eventually led to the fact that at one point, there was U.S. companies making rapid tests for Europe, not for America. I, I, I harped on that so much at the time because it just shows you the bureaucratic nightmare of the FDA and the CDC not using their emergency authority in order to push these things through. So look, those are three egregious ones that we pointed to. And I know there are so many more. Lockdowns, the initial vax campaign. I could go on, for, the fact they covered up the obesity. Uh, you know, it's so much of the risk factors more. But like, Outside of the controversial realm, you cannot look at any of these three things, no matter where you fall on a spectrum of public health, and not say, this is a colossal mistake. Yeah. Colossal mistake. How long did it yeah. take it take us before the U.S. government was able to send Americans tests? Oh, what, a year and a year, half? I think, yeah. I, think I mean, it, was, it didn't happen yeah. until under the Biden administration. Right. I mean, it was forever. South Korea, yeah. which reported their first test within a day of us, a week later— gave permission for their commercial labs to develop tests. Within two weeks, they were shipping thousands of test, kit daily, test kits daily. And by mid-March, they were testing at a per capita rate 40 times higher than the U.S. And by the way, I mean, South Korea, I think, has been uh, lauded for their early coronavirus mm-hmm. response, much more effective than ours. But there were countries around the world, and not just developed nations. There were other poorer countries that were able to develop tests Ethiopia. and get their tests to yeah. their population far faster than we were able to do. And of all the screw-ups, I mean, that may have been the most critical because that meant in those early days, we were flying blind. We had no idea how far it had spread, where it was, where the hotspots were. People were getting sick at that time and they had no idea whether they had it or not, which of course, you know, was terrifying for them and also resulted in additional sickness and death. So um, yeah, this was one of the most sort of critical screw-ups at the very beginning. So listen, bottom line, good that they're doing this assessment now. This came from you know, an external group that came in and looked at what happened and tried to do an independent evaluation. Good that they're having some unvarnished talk about what needs to happen here and planning on a big reorganization and a big shakeup and moving it from this sort of like laid back academic setting to more of a 
urgent. We got to get this done. And it's in the interest of the public health. And that's what we're focused on. Um, posture. Now we got to see if they're actually able to pull it well, off. Well, unfortunately, we already know that's not the case with monkeypox. We're about to talk about that. And, you know, even the leading from behind strategy continues. Let's put this up there, which is that you guys might have noticed, which is exactly a week ago. The CDC actually revised all of its guidance around COVID, lifting requirements to quarantine if exposed to the virus, de-emphasize screening people with no symptoms, updating COVID-19 protocols in schools, the effective test-to-stay strategy, and saying, well, you know, COVID, it's here to stay. They say that I don't really think there's many state or local jurisdictions that are even feeling they're going to need to start making mandates. So they're abandoning a mandate strategy, abandoning the test-to-stay strategy, and saying, look, we just know that COVID is here to stay, and we need to learn to live with it. I mean, look, people have been doing that for over a year. Some people in the South have been doing it for much longer than a year. And they just come out, well, the entire American people, this is why this is very bad, which is that states and localities had to make individual decisions based upon unclear data and popular guidance before, months before, some some cases years before, the CDC was like, yeah, this is reality now. You should have it the opposite. The CDC, I always, we always, I think I use this example on steak. You know, the CDC is like, yeah, you should cook a steak well done. And people are like, okay, thank you. I'm just not going to do that. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, listen, you know, it's, thank you for telling me They that, have all kinds of guys like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like- runny eggs. By the way, runny eggs are disgusting, in my opinion. Now, some people like it. Uh, apparently, they even order them that way. I think it's gross. You but, like the yolk all completely uh, hardened? 100%. That like, is nasty. Cooked to it, Almost burned <laughs> on the to pan. I want stick into the pan when I scrape it off. Look, I'm a weird guy. <laughs> It is what it is. But more what I'm saying is I'm actually following CDC guidance in that, but I don't go after what, it's like Eggs Benedict, right? Where you oh, get the yolk. Delicious. Anyway, but that's why every but time you, know you eat Eggs Benedict, you are violating CDC guidance. Whatever. You know you what know, is gross though is when yeah. the, the whites of the egg aren't yeah. cooked. Now that Ugh, is nasty. <laughs> but a runny yolk, yeah, okay. that's, All right. that's life. Uh, the, that's uh, my point is they tell you not to do it. People say, I'm just going to do it. There's, a, there's also, there's the actually a lot of guidance yeah. for like pregnant ladies that also <laughs> yeah. is really outdated and like nobody, other countries are right. like, what? You can't eat like certain types of cheese? What are you talking about? Oh, really? I didn't <laughs> yeah. know about that. Oh, yeah, it's like yeah. soft cheeses. You're supposed to avoid <laughs> deli meat. I mean, listen, there are like outside, outside, right. outside chances that this could be a problem for you. But I just want you guys to know I had three kids and I had um, all sorts of cheese and deli meat during there you the go. time and it all worked out okay. More is than my point is. <laughs> Give the guidance. People can live their lives. It should be the. It should be uh, directional in the way that we see what it is. Okay, we understand that, and then we can live from there. Instead, people had to start living in all these disparate ways across the country. Some places have mass mandates. Some places don't have mass mandates. More based upon, frankly, the paranoia of their population than the actual science. And then the scientists take months in order to catch up with the general public. It's just a complete and total failure. So I think this is a perfect way to end that CDC story, acknowledging the failure, but at the same time, continuing the bureaucratic failure. We have one last little update we wanted to bring to you here, which is, uh, as we have been talking about, Rachel Maddow no longer hosting a regular nightly show, which is a really, and how do you feel about her, end of an era uh, in terms of cable news. I really, you know, maintain there are basically two figures in cable news that have true loyal audiences. That would be Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow. Um, They're in some ways, you know, 
two sides of the same coin. She even spoke very favorably of him. In well, he gave her a start. Recent yeah. interview. So, yeah. I mean, it is it is very interesting. So, she stepped down, and she's the only person at MSNBC that can really drive ratings. Um, they put in her place Alex Wagner, who, interesting, I mean, she was there when I was there. Um, she was fired when I was fired and mm-hmm. like a massive, you know, they they let go a bunch of people at that time. But Alex is very sort of well-connected and she went on to do Showtime Circus. She was over at, I don't know, CBS or something like that as well. Manages to get brought back in as a guest host and then kind of out of nowhere, they hand her this uh, most coveted slot on the in the entire lineup. So she launched her show this week and they had a little bit of te- technical difficulties at the very beginning. Let's take a look at that. So with that, let's get started. Tonight, the FBI warrant used to search Mar-a-Lago is unsealed. The three potential crimes laid out in that document. We'll dive into what it means and what could happen with one of the Wall Street Journal reporters who was first to report on the contents of that warrant. Then we'll... Then we'll talk with... We, we're going to go right. We are actually going to go right to the top story tonight. Uh, oh, so I would make there. fun. I've been there. But I've been, I've there. been there. It sucks. <laughs> that's also why we don't do the show live specifically for that reason. Uh, so that's really hard. But yeah, I mean, I guess you would think that they would probably do a better job. That they would have sure. the, the temp- teleprompter up and right. You you would think that like, these places are like well-oiled machines. Right. MSNBC is not a well-oiled machine, I can assure you. Wouldn't you think, though, for your very first show, for the top-rated program, that you would have everything like ready to go? Locked and loaded. Teleprompter locked and loaded. And, I mean, also, I mean, look, I don't want to criticize it too much, but it's also one of those things where you kind of do have to roll with it. We've had our teleprompter breakdown you know, several times yeah. on Rising. And if it's total, if it's a monologue, that's different. You can't really go with it. But there's a certain level of ad lib. I've seen it happen before, live in studio at Fox and others when the teleprompter goes down. People are actually pretty good. I mean, part of the reason, they'll just start reading off of their computer or you know, try some, and ad lib, throw to something. Some anchors will always keep their scripts in front of them. Yeah. So that if that, and they're like actually flipping through their script as the teleprompter is rolling, just in case the teleprompter breaks down, that they have it there for them. That always seemed like too much trouble for me. I just figured I'd just live on the edge and see what happens. Um, But yeah, I mean, listen, I have been there. It is not an easy thing to manage, I'm sure, especially when it's your first night and you're probably a little nervous and jittery about how it's all going to go. The ratings are in uh, for how it did go. And let's put this up on the screen. I like the deadline kind of... Kind of spins this in her favor. They say Alex Wagner draws solid 2 million viewers to debut of MSNBC primetime show Hannity Tops, the time slot. But if you dig into the some, some of the details here, um, she was down. So Rachel did actually record an episode on Monday. Mm-hmm. And Alex's uh, ratings were already down 27% from what Rachel did. So in her debut show, when you would think there would be some interest, excitement, or whatever, her you know, already you've got 27% of the audience that's like, nah, I'm yeah. good. Well, yeah, uh, go ahead. And you also had, you know, they always love to talk about like the top line, like, mm-hmm. oh, 2 million people watched. But in inside the cable news industry, no one cares about the total audience numbers. The only thing that matters is the demo because the rest of the audience is actually literally worthless because you don't sell ads based on that total number. You sell ads based on 
who is watching in the key 25 to 54 demographic. And in that key demo, she had 183,000 viewers, which is a lot fewer That's than insane. Yeah, people need to really <laughs> inter- like. So, okay, there are 2 million people who are watching it, but only 183,000 of them were between the age of 25. shows you how old these audiences yeah, are, are so too. Old. And this is across the board, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. Yep. Their audiences are so old. Yeah, CNN was 176,000. Hannity, shockingly, is 400,000. But I guess he has so many more viewers that it, it probably is relatively proportional. That's a perfect example, right, of, listen, I mean, again, I don't want to dunk too much, but like here on Breaking Points, every single person who watches this show is in the key demo. And, you know, a weekend at Wills to often have single clips with 180,000 viewers. Like that, it's just so obvious to see that. It's, oh, if you start including the podcast numbers, which again, same demographic, like the disconnect in the people who consume media and the, the general biography is just insane whenever you really consider it. And Look, it's a dying industry in that way. The last people who are watching it won't be people who are. MSNBC is just going to turn into Fox, where all of the all of the ads are like, "Buy gold now," you know, "Buy insulin." It's all right. It's all like pharmaceutical ads, and so it's like ninety percent pharma, which is insane too that it's even allowed. Which actually tells you a lot about media, what's allowed. And I think what are we? One of the only two countries on earth that even allows direct pharmaceutical advertising. Doesn't yeah. seem to make a lot Anytime of sense. people from other countries can, they're like, what the hell yeah, is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask your doctor. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, we get, we get used to it. We come to, you know, it's feel disturbing. like it's natural, but it right. really is very disturbing the sorts of pharmaceutical ads we're subjected to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, early indications of how that's all going to go. I think, you know, MSNBC really has a problem here, especially heading into whatever the next presidential era is going to be. Because now she, Rachel, is going to come back, I guess, for big events yeah, and it's like a, debate nights right. and election nights and all that sort of stuff. Um, but they just really didn't cultivate any sort of an internal bench. The fact that they had to sort of reach back and grab someone from a past era mm-hmm. and slaughter in tells you a lot about what they have up and coming. Of course, they would never think of, hey, maybe in this new era we should go for someone who, you know, is an independent media, has some. No, they wouldn't. That's definitely off the table because those people might have a little bit of a mind of their own. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. 
Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.